Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, our podcast series at Pazina Investment Management. We are a global value manager known for our commitment and dedication to disciplined value investing throughout investment cycle. Today, we are here to discuss the investment opportunity in emerging market banks. This podcast goes along with a thought piece, giving credit, emerging markets banks. You can find this on our website, pazina.com. Let me introduce you to our guests. I'm here today with Rakesh Bordia. Welcome, Rakesh. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here. Rakesh is a portfolio manager on our emerging market strategies, and he has been at Pazina Investment Management for 14 years. We are also here with Jason Doctor. Good morning, Jason. Morning, Valerie. Excited to be here this morning. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Jason is an analyst at Pazina, and he is focused on re- researching the emerging market banks and commodity sectors. And he's also been at Pazina Investment Management for six years. So I'll kick us off with a question for Jason. When people think about emerging market bank crises, I think they are anchored to the idea of big, spectacular, contagion-driven blowups. And yet, it feels like it's been a long time since we saw an event like that. Jason, can you take us through the history of banks and emerging markets? So, you know, I, I think whenever we have these conversations with people, they're always very focused on some of the events of let's call it the last 20 or 30 years that ended up in these you know, massive, scary, terrible events that led to entire banking sectors getting wiped out. Um, and those events all kind of had, had one thing in common, which is really they're focused around what's called a, a balance of payments issue. And you know, balance of payments is like a really jargony word. Um, and I'm one who generally loves jargon. So, but I think in simple terms, um, Paul Krugman has a book, a, a Country is Not a Company. And I, I think we would all kind of agree that for um, an, a developed markets country that has control over its currency and that, that doesn't need um, sort of a, a constant access to inbound capital, th- that's a true statement. Um, I think in the emerging markets, though, that's probably less true than we would like it to be. And, and really where this comes from is the idea that you know, emerging markets economies are growing so fast relative to the size of the current size of the economy that really they can't fund uh, their investments need their investment needs through savings. Simply put, what a, the balance of payments is for an economy is the difference between what you make and produce internally and what you need to continue to grow the economy and to serve consumer demand at the rate that the economy demands. So you hear all kinds of fancy terms like current account and portfolio flows and things like that. But really what it comes down to it is an EM economy generally demands more in capital than it can produce itself. And what tends to happen is you get all kinds of of funky things going on, especially when people get really excited about an emerging market economy where you can really start to see people really want to give them more and more money, which makes that sort of current account balance of payment get worse and worse. And eventually, if things don't play out the way people think it's supposed to, things go bad, you know? Um, and, And if you have a pegged currency that really requires those inward flows to support it, things can go from bad to worse very quickly. And that's kind of how you end up with the famous controversies of the the 90s and early 2000s. Okay, Jason, 
So when we think about emerging economies, they are extremely diverse with each dancing to its own social, political and economic tune. And as such, at any given point in time, while some emerging economies are doing really well, others are undergoing a crisis. Even today, for example, there are more than 40 countries that have some sort of an IMF support program. And if you look at the last 30 years, uh, some of these crises have been big, uh, like the LATAM crisis or the Asian financial crisis. And then there have been lots of smaller ones, whether it's Brazil, Argentina, the Baltics. Are you saying that these unchecked macro imbalances are the biggest drivers of bank losses across all these wide spectrum of, of emerging economies? Rakesh, I think when you look at the two big crises of the 90s that I think everybody's anchored on. The LATAM debt crisis, which is really Mexican driven, which really happened in 94. Um, the Asia crisis, which was really um, in 97, 98. They're kind of the classic examples of sort of a balance of payment crisis. Um, they both occurred after the end of big booms. Mexico, really happened because you had foreign capital getting excited about the prospect of NAFTA and the economic growth there. You also had the PRI, um, the ruling party in Mexico uh, during that time period had a tradition of you ramped up public spending and fiscal deficits around elections. Um, the fact that foreign investors were so willing to fund that deficit spending meant that they made it even bigger than normal. And so you, you had a ton of foreign capital that flowed in to support things. And then you, you just had a bunch of things that, that, that changed how people thought about the growth prospects in Mexico. And that capital just turned around and ran out as fast as it could. And the central bank in Mexico was unable to support the currency. The banks had done a bunch of foreign currency lending, got themselves in trouble. Um, you, you saw a similar dynamic in Asia. There, you, there you wouldn't really say there was a specific cause that what that what that's what got people excited about Asia, um, other than the fact that Southeast Asia had grown so much faster than the than the rest of the world um, for a significant period of the post-war era, right? But again, there you had fast GDP growth um, that got foreign investors excited about the local currencies, uh, excuse me, the lo local economies really led to a lot of inward investment that went into sort of non-productive projects and real estate and stuff like that. Um, the government sort of started to allow the, the economy to run a bigger uh, current account deficit because there was so much inbound capital. And then just, just something happened, right? Um, that, that led those investors to say, you know what? My expectations for returns um, in Thailand are lower than what I thought they were. And again, capital sort of ran out the door and all of those bad sort of things that the, the, the finance ministers and the, the bank regulators had been allowing participants in the economy to do kind of came home to roost and came home to roost in, in, a, in a really spectacular way. What's, what's different about Mexico and the Asian crisis relative to um, some of the things we see today, right? I mean, I think Rukash alluded to them a little bit earlier in the conversation, things like the Baltics during the global financial crisis, or even like Lebanon today, which is almost like a classic version of a, of a balance of payment crisis. There, you just had so much unconstrained failure that, that, that the contagion really kicked off a 
across the region because you, you, you had, they were big economies who were bad actors, right? Um, as we'll get into a little bit later, you actually don't have that same kind of setup today. Not to say that there aren't countries that have bad setups, but you don't have sort of whole regions of the world filled with bad actors. Um, you you kind of just don't have the fuel for the contagion because we, we haven't had the kind of booms that we had heading into all of those other classic controversies. I think, Jason, that's really interesting. And I think, it, Valerie, it really answers your question on why we haven't seen these major crises in emerging markets over the last couple of decades. It, it seems that many of these economies which went through these crises and others who did not learned really well from the mistakes that these economies made in the late 1990s that Jason was referring to and have managed both the macro structure as well as the regulation really well coming out of it over the last two decades. So if you think about the, the three things that Jason was highlighting, uh, one was just the balance of payments issue. The second was, was foreign exchange, you know, how the countries were dealing with foreign exchange situation in those balance of payment crisis. And third is purely the, just the fundamental uh, structure of the economy all those three things have been much better in emerging markets over the last few decades. On the balance of payments issue, the current account deficits have been, uh, have been low. Now, partly supported by lower energy prices, but they are running you know, at low single digits in many cases as a percentage of GDP and overall very, very manageable. On the foreign exchange side, Clearly, the dollar-denominated debt levels have been much lower than they were in the past crisis. And the currency peggings have become less and less relevant in, in emerging markets as many of the currencies, while they're managed, they are not really pegged. And, and so it's much easier to manage those, those currency issues. Also, the, the foreign exchange reserves of all these economies are at much higher levels and much more comfortable levels versus their historical weakness in the late 1990s. I mean, just to give an example, Korea in 1997 had 4% of its GDP as foreign exchange reserve versus today's 25%. Number for Thailand is 18 uh, then versus 41 today. And Brazil six versus 19. So there has been significant improvement in these foreign exchange reserves. And this has also been supported by, uh, I would say US Federal Reserve in terms of higher liquidity. So it really avoids the major illiquidity risk that many of these economies can face when nobody wants to, to give them any money, which can create a, a huge crisis as well. And the third point is just the, the fundamental economy, which Jason was referring to. Uh, they have had relatively controlled expansion. No, no real bubbles. Yes, of course, it's a, it's a wide spectrum and there are some here and there, but no significant excesses. The, the GDP growth rates and the, the economies are, are in a much better shape. So there's a much lower risk of, of capital uh, outflows. So putting it all together, while history may repeat itself for some countries who have really not learned the lesson or are kind of going to the same playbook as these crises happened, we, I think, stand uh, from a macro standpoint at, at much better level and a, a huge severe macro failure uh, from a macro standpoint seems a low likelihood event. 
You know, Rakesh, it's interesting you mentioned regulation before. Um, it's really something that I, I think is an important part of the story as well. But look at the ways in which the regulators have um, really just become more intelligent and thoughtful about how uh, they approach the sector. Um, if you go back and you know look at the Asian financial crisis again, you had these really incredible rates of loans going bad in places like Indonesia. You know, I think um, during the Asian financial crisis, 47% of bank loans in Indonesia went to non-performing status, meaning that the borrowers were not making their payments. And you know, one of the things that you really figured out happened there was that the banking industry had been captured by sort of the industrial tycoons. And they were using those deposits to sort of make loans to places in their empire to pursue projects that were questionable in nature. And some projects that, you know, you look back at and say that was actually just fraud, a way for them to funnel cash um, into their own offshore accounts in, in other parts of the world. Um, so, you know, you, you see what the regulators have done and they, they've really been much more thoughtful about this. You know, you, you really, in most parts of the world, um, severed the, the linkages between the industrial groups and the banks. Um, that's usually an important first step in getting things better. Central banks themselves have become much more thoughtful and sophisticated. And in a way, they're really focused on not repeating the mistakes they've made in the past. Um, and, and you could argue that some of them have become you know, overly conservative. You've also seen large embrace of uh, macroprudential measures in certain economies to calm down markets they think are getting overheated. You know, you've seen the Korean Central Bank intervene pretty regularly to control real estate prices there. Um, you've seen the Bank, Bank of Thailand intervene to sort of tramp down um, mortgage credit growth there. Um, not that those numbers aren't high, not that we don't, we're not a little bit worried about those numbers, but I think you know, 30 years ago, the idea that the regulator would intentionally slow down asset price inflation um, would, would have been a crazy thing. Um, and then finally, you know, I just think the way banks globally are regulated is a little bit more thoughtful. You have more thought thinking around how risky are these assets rather than just simply saying how much capital do I have. And broadly speaking, for a given dollar of risk in an EM bank, you are requiring more capital. Um, because I think what history has shown us is that a small and medium-sized company lending book in the emerging world is a risky book of assets. And there's a saying in banking, it's never the assets you know are risky that end up creating a problem for you. It's the assets you thought were riskless that become slightly risky that create the problem for you. But the reality of it is, is that in the emerging market banks, for the most part, everybody knows the assets are a little bit risky. And so you're, you've, you've capitalized them and regulated them based on that. So, you know, I think, I think you roll it all up and you just feel like, yeah, yes, there, there are going to be bad things that happen. You know, we, we talked about the lack of fraud. But yet, you know, we, we already have some examples of that in this crisis, because every time you have a crisis, fraud will show up. You have Hin Leong, 
in Singapore, which was a bunker fuel operator that turned out to just be completely fraudulent. You had NMS and Fenabler in the UAE who there was always some questions around the cash flow and it turned out that there should have been questions around the cash flow. So, so you're always going to see that. And, and the assertion we're making isn't, you know, everything is wonderful in the emerging markets and there aren't going to be bad, crazy things that we look at and go, oh my gosh, how did that happen? But we think there's enough capital there to, to survive sort of those random event generators that, that are just going to happen. So from a macro perspective, I think we feel kind of okay about things. Thanks, Jason. Rakesh, it was great to talk about the top-down macro issues as they relate to banks. But at Pazina, we are clearly focused on the bottom-up using fundamental analysis at the company level. So what do we think the conventional wisdom misses about emerging market banks as businesses by focusing always on the macro environment, it seems like. Valerie, you raise a very important point and it's absolutely critical to understanding the risk of banks in emerging markets. If you think about how a bank works at a very simplistic level, banks borrow money from their depositors at an interest rate and then lend it to corporations and consumers at a higher rate. And that's the spread which, which basically makes their profit. Now, if you think about in the developed world, the large mega banks have evolved into a lot more complex than, uh, than a basic simple bank. If you think about JP Morgan, they don't do just do lending, they do investment banking, they do brokerage, they do trading, they do wholesale banking, and the list goes on. Now, if you think about, take a step back and think about the emerging markets banks, they are still very much the simple banks that I was talking about. They have very strong deposit franchises where they borrow money from their depositors and then lend it, and that's, that's their primary business. Now, if you really want to be good in that business, the real benefit is to have very strong deposit franchises. Scale matters because in deposits, the larger the scales, lower your deposit costs. So that also means that for most of the emerging markets banks, they have uh, very strong market shares, and as such, the industries are much more consolidated, which thereby res results in lower competition. So lower competition basically means, means better prices. And so overall, if you think, just translate this whole structure for emerging markets, the, the margins and the profitability of emerging markets banks is much wider than it is in developed markets. So now it's important from several levels. One is it makes the banks a lot less interest rate sensitive because you have much wider margins. A small shift in the interest rate doesn't have a dramatic impact on your, uh, on your profit margins. Secondly, a lot more importantly is because the profitability levels are high, it does significantly improve their loss absorption capacity. To just give you an example, uh, picking some countries in, in emerging markets, which are on a very wide spectrum of the macro fundamentals, let's pick Brazil. Brazil, just based on the, the strong industry structure the banks have, has a total loss absorbing capacity, almost 30% of their, of their balance sheet over the next three years. So effectively what that means is they can have very high level of losses and the balance sheet is still intact. 
that number is as high as 25% in Thailand, as high as 21% in Turkey. So this simplistic banking structure resulting in, in, in much higher consolidated industries uh, structure in each of these banks and higher margins makes emerging markets bank fundamentally a much, much better business than they are in developed market banks. You know, I also think it's important to note too, I mean, not only is it a better business, but they're much more central to the provision of capital um, in the economies, right? You think about in the US, once businesses get above a certain size, they really use the capital markets to fund themselves. Um, but in a lot of emerging markets economies, even, even large corporations are using bank lending to fund sort of their expansion programs. And so the regulators kind of know this and so they manage them because there's two problems, right? Number one, governments can't achieve their goals for economic growth without the banks. And number two, um, if the banks do run into, a, into trouble, um, it's much harder for the governments to do the kinds of things that we see in the developed world to support the banks. Getting back to the original point we made around how the EM, the EM economies need to manage those twin deficits that the, the current account um, and, the, and the, the, the fiscal deficit, the fiscal balance that really requires the banks to be more central and, and to be and to be fair, a, a, a little bit more conservative than what you would need um, in, in the developed world. And I think this was probably one of the drivers, Jason, that many of the emerging markets banks came out pretty much you know, unscathed in the global financial crisis, much different from the developed market banks, which really got caught in all these complex financial instruments beyond just the lending losses, because the credit losses were, were really not that crazy for, for the emerging markets banks. And there was no really fundamental macro issue. Uh, so the simpler models did really well. Now, having said that, we all know that the emerging markets is, is a very wide spectrum and it has lots of different economies who vary a lot, both from a macro and from a local banking market level. And, and even for example, how they have addressed the current uh, COVID crisis, many of the, the economies have taken a very different approach. So maybe, maybe it's, it would be helpful, Jason, to contrast a couple of countries to, which have which have been on the very different end of the spectrum, both from a macro and the underlying banking structures, to see how how can one invest in these wide range of economies, going from both macro fundamentals as well as from the industry structure perspective. Yeah, yeah, de definitely, Rakesh. I mean, I think two markets that I think about a lot. One because it's very controversial, and the other because we have a relatively large position there. Um, it, it is Turkey and Thailand. You know, Turkey is pretty high profile at the moment. Um, we've talked a lot about balance of payment crises, uh, you know, during during this conversation. And really, Turkey is a market that appears um, to be kind of going through one of those, right? You have the Erdogan government making relatively poor choices in the form of um, running a large uh, current account deficit. Uh, because they do require so much investment because the population is relatively young and growing. Um, you know, Erdogan believes that uh, inflation and interest rates are positively correlated. So he has uh, been reticent to allow the, um, the non-independent central bank to, uh, to raise interest rates to support the currency. 
but at the same time, um, he doesn't want to see the Turkish lira devalue because if he allows the Turkish lira to devalue, um, it will make imports harder for consumers to buy and, and consumers who can't buy imports tend not to vote for incumbents. Um, so, so, you know, you really got yourself um, in, in, a, in an interesting situation and, and, you know, you don't really know how it's going to play out. Um, but what I think is remarkable about Turkey is that, you know, all of these conditions really existed um, a year ago and we were sitting here and watching it and trying to figure out what was going to happen. And really COVID in the context of Turkey has been more of a um, catalyst for an existing setup. Um, than anything else. Um, so it's, it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens going forward. Hold on, Jason. I thought balance of payments was a bad thing. So why is Tur Turkey different from these past crises? You know, Valerie, I think that's right. Um, balance of payments are, are a bad thing. Balance of payments issues are a bad thing. Um, what's interesting about Turkey is that, is that if you look at Thailand or, or Mexico, the banks were generally um, short foreign currency funding, foreign currency deposits, right? So when the currency devalued, all of a sudden, the, the, their funding sort of ran away from them, right? Um, the Turkish banks won't feel that same kind of pain. Now, What's going on there, and one of the reasons why we think you know there might be an opportunity with some of the, the higher quality names, and, and we've kept that intentionally quite small because it is quite an uncertain place to be, is if you are a private bank, your ability to resist the central bank um, and the government's goal of, of having you basically lend them US dollars and euros to support the currency um, is less than if you're one of the state-owned banks. So we have a position in what we think is a, is a very high quality Turkish bank that so far has, has pledged less of their assets with, with the central bank, um, or rather less of their liabilities with the central bank. You know, the contrast to that is really Thailand. Um, Thailand is a market, we're, we're relatively excited about it. And there, you know, COVID has manifested itself much more like much more like you would expect to see in a developed market, i.e. it's really just about credit pain. It's not about macro pain. If you had looked at Thailand a year ago, you would have said, oh my gosh, you know, their real problem is the currency is overvalued or the currency, you know, the, the, current, account the current account surplus is so big that it's basically destroyed a lot of their export industry. Um, the banks were really suffering from low credit growth as a result of that. And you had had the, the, the central bank being relatively aggressive, both on the macroprudential side, but also doing some things to sort of force the banks to, to modernize themselves that had some near-term impacts on ROEs. Um, and then COVID comes along and um, you know, about 10% of the Thai economy is directly associated with tourism. Um, tourism has essentially gone to zero because of COVID. I mean, it's, it's bad enough that you have people rioting in the streets against the king in, in Bangkok at the moment. But what's exciting to us about it is that, you know, the economy, that from a macro perspective, Thailand, 
Thailand's macro balances feel really solid to us. And the banks themselves um, are extremely well capitalized. As franchises, they're you know pretty good. Um, the top uh, five banks in Thailand are something like 80% of the deposit share, um, which is you know the kind of market structure we like to see. And the actual business of, of underwriting what COVID is going to do to these banks feels a lot more like what we would expect to see in a developed market as opposed to an emerging market where you thought, as opposed to a traditional emerging markets controversy where you, you felt there was some risk of an unconstrained kind of outcome. As a result of that, we felt pretty comfortable with our positions in it. Thank you, Jason. This has been really great. Rakesh, do you have any final thoughts for the audience? So Valerie, I think as we have walked through this, what we at Pazina feel very strongly is that for emerging markets, in general, the macro picture is much stronger than it has been uh, over the last two decades. Secondly, banks are fundamentally much stronger uh, once one in emerging markets versus developed market, but even versus their own history over the, over the last 15 years. And you saw that strength play out uh, partly in the global financial crisis. Now, during this year, given the, the, the COVID uncertainty and, uh, and what has gone on, they have had tremendous underperformance, but their valuations today in light of these trends are really exceptional. And even if you assume very high credit losses, uh, they provide great investment opportunities. Of course, selectivity is key. As Jason highlighted the, the case of Thailand versus, versus Turkey, the range of outcomes in some economies are is just much wider versus other economies. So both selectivity of which banks you pick in which economies and how you size the position given the range of outcomes is absolutely critical. And that is where, where we spend most of our time researching. And one thing I would want to highlight that uh, in, in prior crises, whenever there was this major uh, dislocation in the prices as it has happened this year, the period following that generally had tremendous outperformance for these banks once they came out of this crisis. And we strongly believe that, that we are sitting in front of that, that strong outperformance at this point. Thank you, Jason and Rakesh for joining me today. And thank you everyone for joining the latest episode in our podcast series, Pazina Perspective. If you would like further information on this podcast, please check out our thought piece, Giving Credit, Emerging Markets Bank, which you can find on our website, pazina.com.